When I was 14 years old, there were three things that I knew for sure. I knew, first of all, that God had called me to be a pastor. That happened at a summer camp when I was 14 years old, so I knew that for sure. And as a result of that, I knew the second thing. I knew when I graduated from high school, I would go to a Christian college, a Bible college, and study to be a pastor. And then the third thing that I knew is that I would have to figure out how to pay for college because my parents had made it clear to my brother and my sister and I that we would either need scholarships or we would need to save money to pay for it. Now, I knew I probably wasn't going to get any full-ride scholarships. There were some problems with that. One of the problems was I was more intent on having fun than being a good student. So I was, my grades were not that great. Second thing is I wasn't an athlete. And the third thing was that most Bible colleges don't give out scholarships for being fun, humorous, and overall awesome guys. They just don't seem to do that. And so I knew for years that I would need money for college, but I never quite got around to saving money. I, I tried, but it seemed like all the money that I put away into savings always had to be used for other pressing priorities. Pressing priorities like taking Jill out on dates and um, pressing priorities like a uh, awesome stereo for my car. Um, Priorities like that, you know, really pressing priorities. And the closer that I got to the time to leave for Bible college, the more I began to panic. I began to panic about it, and it was a time that I was spending lots and lots of time in prayer about this problem. I was praying all the time about this financial problem, and then it seemed like all of a sudden God began to answer my prayers. He began to answer my prayers. One of the fast food restaurants I frequented began a contest. Each time that you made a purchase there, they would give you stamps or stickers, and these stamps or stickers had food items pictured on them. And if you saved the right combination of these stickers you could win $100,000 or $10,000. And it didn't take long before I was one chili dog away from $100,000. One chili dog picture away from $100,000 and one Polish sandwich picture away from $10,000. And I just knew this was how God was going to take care of my college education. And... Um, I began sharing this with some of my friends. They began saving me their little stickers. And uh, I would go at least once every day and I would buy a, a Coke or I would buy a order of fries or I would buy a hot dog and I would get the stickers and I would go back to my car and I would pray. I would pray over those stickers. I would say, God, I believe that you can pay for my Bible college education this way. And I want to tell you 
that God paid for my college education through a fast food restaurant contest scholarship. I want to tell you that, but it wouldn't be true. It didn't happen. You see, I had fooled myself into believing that God works that way, and he can. He absolutely can, but he usually doesn't. That's usually not the way he works. No, most things in life God provides to us when we take action, when we do right things. And then God blesses it, and he multiplies it, and he gives us strength, but often he uses our actions to accomplish his desires in our life. And it isn't lost on me, by the way, that if I had saved all of those um, dollars that I spent on pop and french fries and hot dogs trying to get that one chili dog sticker that I well, I still wouldn't have paid for my college education, but I would have had more than $200 in my pocket when I left for Bible college. Yet, I find that I'm not alone in some of these things. I find there are still people who are waiting for some miracle from God to do what God wants them to do. They're waiting for a miracle from God to do what God already wants them to do. I mean, they may be waiting to win the lottery before they give significantly to God, or they are waiting for this miracle to happen in their life where their schedule suddenly becomes free and opened, and they have all sorts of time available before they begin to step out and serve God. But you know, God usually doesn't work that way. It's more, much more likely that God is going to accomplish His will through our hard work, through the adjustments that we make to our schedule and other areas of our lives through sacrifices, rather than in some amazing, miraculous way. He usually doesn't just drop it in our laps. Now, now why doesn't he drop it in our laps? Well, it's because he knows us. You see, he knew that if I'd gotten that chili dog sticker that I probably would have found a spiritual, logical reason why I should delay going to Bible college for one year, you know, and then I would have spent all that money, uh, all those winnings, and still would have been in the same situation. He knows us. And even when God does a miracle, and he does miracles all the time, but when he does a miracle, it's usually after we take a step of faith. When God parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel. It wasn't until Moses went and obeyed God by holding out his hand for the waters to roll back. When they crossed the Jordan River later on, it wasn't until they physically took steps and waded into the river that the river began to push back. And that's usually the way that God works. You see that time and time and time again in the Bible when someone believes God, when someone takes a action step, that's when God begins to work a miracle. And we've seen that in our own lives too. This property didn't become available to us until 100% of our leadership team 
uh, agreed together that moving off of our old property was the path that God wanted us to take. That's when the doors began to open. And in my own life, several times I have made commitments to obey God in areas that just seemed absolutely, completely impossible or difficult to fulfill. They were really, really scary. And each time God has done amazing, sometimes miraculous things right after Jill and I took a step of faith and took action in one of those areas. That seems to be the way God works. And I submit to you, that's what winning faith is like. That's what winning faith is like. We have started this series. This is our third week in a series from the book of James. We're walking through it pretty much verse by verse. And we're looking at what it means to have a winning faith, to feel successful, to uh, excel in this area of faith. That's what Jesus' brother James writes about in this letter. And today we will discover that Christ followers with a winning faith will have a bias towards action. They will have a bias towards action. A bias towards action means when you have the choice of sitting back or getting involved, you get involved. And when you have the choice of waiting or moving forward, you move forward. A bias for action means that it's hard to get you to pause. It's hard to get you to delay instead of acting. And I think James teaches us that winning faith has a bias for action. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 22. Do what God's teaching says. Don't just listen and do nothing. Do what God's teaching says. Don't just listen and do nothing. And so today, let's explore this a little bit more. We're going to look at James chapter 2. If you want to open your Bible or your device and follow along, you can do that. Or uh, the scriptures will be on the screen or they're there in your notes. But in James 2, James lists, I believe, three types of faith. And only one type of faith is a winning faith. The first type of faith James talks about is a faith that talks. A faith that talks. Look at what he says in chapter 2. Start with verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day and stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James tells us that some people who claim to have faith substitute words for deeds. They have the right vocabulary. They sound spiritual when they talk about faith. I mean, they have the right vocabulary for prayers. When they pray in front of other people, people just think that they pray so well. And they have this great vocabulary for talking to other Christians about spiritual things. And they can even quote the Bible mostly by memory. But what they do and what they say doesn't match at all. Those with a faith that talks thinks they're, think their words for God are as good as works for God. And James gives us this illustration of why that isn't true. He says, a fellow Christ follower 
doesn't have any food or clothing. Now notice what he says there. We're talking necessities. We're not talking luxuries. It's not another Christ follower comes and can't pay their cable bill. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about food and clothing. We're talking about necessities. And the person with a faith that talks says, hey, have a great day. We'll see you later. I'll pray for you. And I'm going to pray that you are going to be well fed and warm. But they don't give them any help. They do nothing. And the person leaves needy. They leave naked and hungry. And they leave probably more hurt than ever. It's amazing how that happens often when those come to when people come to another Christian for help and they receive only spiritual talk, they're often worse off than when they arrive. They often feel more hurt, more pain, more confusion than when they first arrived. And here's the irony of the situation. The person with the faith that talks probably feels better. They probably feel like they have ministered to the person, that they've encouraged the person. They, they probably are pretty pleased with what they said. Now, the Apostle John wrote about this too. In 1 John chapter 3, here's what he says. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children... Let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. I submit to you, we always show the truth by our actions. That's always the case. But now let me just mention as a sideline here that neither of these passages are intended to give specific instructions about how we help people in need. That's, that's not the point of these passages. Uh, Impact has two different ministries that we have set up to help people in need. One is called the Power of One Dollar, and it is a program where you can nominate someone that you know is in need. And um, the other one is called our Good Samaritan Fund. And both of these ministries have, been, have set down wise guidelines to determine how much help that they can give and in what situations they can give it. And in my personal giving to people in need, I have some guidelines I use also. But the point isn't intended to give instructions on how to care for the needy. It's to tell us that faith that only talks is useless. Faith that only talks is useless. Look back at verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. This verse points out a shocking truth. A shocking truth. Here it is. Faith alone is not enough. Faith alone is not enough. And I know this is different than what some Christian teachers teach. They often say that faith alone and Christ alone is all that you need. But this verse and the following verses makes it clear that winning faith involves more than just believing the right things. It involves more than just trusting God. It involves taking action. It involves doing right things also. So faith that talks is not winning faith. Let's look at the second type of faith that James writes about. He says, there is a faith that feels. A faith that feels. Start with verse 18 and we'll go through verse 20. 
Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now, I think James was purposely trying to shock the people who were reading this with these verses. And I'm sure he did. He says, you say that you have faith because you believe that there is only one true God. He says, well, good for you. That's great. He said, but even demons believe that. Even demons believe that. Have you ever thought about what the demons believe? Let me list just a couple of things. The demons believe in the existence of God. Demons are not agnostic. They are not atheists. They know that God exists. And they believe in the deity of Jesus. In the Bible, every time that Jesus met somebody who had a demon in them, every time he came into contact with a demon, those demons declared him to be the son of God, a divine title. And the demons believe in the existence of hell and they believe in coming judgment and they fear that. They fear that. They believe all of this and it scares them to death. It scares them to death. Their belief is so strong, it causes them to tremble in terror. This isn't just empty words to them. This has really engaged their minds. It's really engaged their emotions. Even demons have a faith that feels. You know what that tells me? It's possible for a person to know the teachings of Jesus. It's possible for a person today to believe that all of those teachings are completely true. It's possible for them to have their heart moved emotionally, maybe to the point of tears, maybe feeling real love for Jesus, maybe feeling fear, maybe wanting to commit themselves to Jesus. But here's the shocking truth. It's possible to believe Christ's claims and to be moved emotionally and still be lost. It's possible to believe Christ's claims and to be moved emotionally and to still be absolutely lost. Wow. Let that sink in a minute. I can feel all sorts of sincere emotions about Jesus and still not belong to Jesus because winning faith is more than that. It's more than that. Verse 18 tells us that winning faith involves something that can be seen. It says you can't really show your faith without also doing right things. True faith expresses itself in right things. Winning faith is seen in what we do. And in verse 20, James says again that this kind of faith, a faith that feels but doesn't do anything, is useless. It's useless. And it's interesting, the word he uses for useless in the original language that this was written in could be translated idle, idle. It's, um, 
what your teenagers do when they aren't doing what you told them to do. They're just idle. They sit there. It has this idea of money that's not drawing interest. It just sits there. It has the picture today of a car that is in park, but the engine is running. It's not moving. It's not going anywhere. It just sits there. And faith that feels is useless. It's idle faith. It just sits there thinking and feeling and maybe talking, but it isn't winning faith. And I am afraid to admit it, but I think there's a lot of followers of Christ today that are sitting in churches week after week after week just idling, not really going anywhere, just sitting there in their faith. And according to James, a faith that feels isn't winning faith. James says a winning faith is a faith that moves. It's a faith that moves. Start with verse 21 of chapter 2. Here's what it says. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So it's really, really clear from this entire passage that winning faith does something. Winning faith results in a changed life. It is a faith that's powerful. It's a faith that's dynamic. It's a faith that moves and breathes and acts. And James gives us two examples here to consider. I mean, first he talks about Abraham, and he's talking to primarily people with a Jewish background, so they would have understand this, understood this, and most of you probably remember the story. God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but Abraham had no children. He had no son, and so God had promised to give him a son, and it took God a long time, more than 20 years, but God kept his promise and he gave him a son. But then God tells Abraham to take that son and to go use him as a human sacrifice. It was a terrible thing to ask. It was a terrible thing to ask, not just because no father would want to do that to their child, but it was a terrible thing for God to ask because Abraham knew that this son was the son in whom God was going to fulfill his promise. Abraham knew that this son was the only path that he could see to God keeping his promise to make Abraham a great nation. And yet Abraham showed his faith. He demonstrated his faith by taking his son and tying him up 
and placing him on the altar. And he had the knife up and ready to kill him when God provided another sacrifice. But God counted Abraham as righteous or right with God because of what he did. Because of what he did. The second example is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the promised land before the children of Israel came to take the land. And when they came to her city, Abraham, or Rahab hid the spies that had come to spy out the land. And she hid them, and then she helped them to escape a different way. And she uh, had been promised by God as a result of that, that God would spare her and God would spare her family when they came to take the city. But according to Joshua chapter 2, which you can read later and uh, read the whole story, Rahab had to do some very specific things in order to receive this promise. Number one, she had to stay in her house. Number two, she had to hang the red scarlet rope that the spies had used to escape out her window. And then number three, she had to gather her family, or at least the family that she wanted to keep around and have saved. She had to gather them into her house and keep them there. Those are specific things that she had to do to receive this promise. Now, why did God ask her to do these things? I mean, why did he ask her to do these things? He, he could have found her and saved her wherever she was. I mean, he knew where she lived. He didn't need this red rope hanging out her window uh, to let him know where she lived. He knew where she lived. So why did he ask her to do these things? Well, because God almost always asks us to take a very significant, visible step of faith before he acts on our behalf. It demonstrated her faith that she believed that God would keep his promises to her. Now, both of these people are examples of faith, not because of what they said, not because of what they believed, not because of what they felt. They are examples of faith because their faith moved to action. They took action to obey God. And basically, in this passage, James is calling out some people. He's very definitely calling out some people who talk about faith and people who just sit around and listen to spiritual things and maybe even get emotional in their faith. He says, if you want a winning faith, which, by the way, is the same thing as saving faith, if you want a winning faith, you had better start acting on what you hear and believe and feel. Because that's part of faith. That's part of winning faith. And that takes us back to some of the verses we skipped in chapter 1 last weekend. So let's read those now. Start with verse 22 and we'll go through verse 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, 
they will be blessed in what they do. Verse 22 gives us another shocking truth. It says, merely listening to God's word may lead to self-deception. Merely listening to God's word may lead to self-deception. Just listening to God's word or, or messages about God's word might cause us problems because we might be focusing ourselves uh, on the wrong thing. We may be deceiving ourselves. And how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think some fool themselves into thinking they have God's blessing because they go to church every week or because they pray when they get into really tight spots or because their grandpa was a pastor way back when or because they read the Bible from time to time at home or they sing God Bless America at a baseball game. And I believe many have deceived themselves into thinking that they're spiritual, that they're okay with God because they know a little bit about the Bible and they hear a sermon from time to time. And James is saying many have been self-deceived by just casually listening to the word of God without acting on it. Many people have been self-deceived into thinking just hearing the Bible taught or reading the Bible will somehow make them okay with God. There's an opposite side of the equation. I don't think this one happens to many people, but on the opposite side are people who deceive themselves by allowing the Bible to become an idol to them. They begin to worship the Bible rather than worshiping Jesus. And you might be thinking, wait, is Pastor Steve saying that it's possible to read the Bible too much? Yeah, I am. This is what the Pharisees in Jesus' day did, and I'm convinced that there are people doing it today. Jesus seemed to say that the religious leaders of his day were harmed rather than helped by their study of Scripture. It's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it, but they had studied Scripture so much, but Jesus seems to say they were harmed by it. Jesus said it's possible to search the Scriptures and miss salvation. Look at what he said in John chapter 5 to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. It's Jesus we worship, not words about Jesus. And occasionally I meet a person who is so concerned about getting it right. They're so concerned about believing all of the right things that they don't seem to be right with God. They know a lot about him, but they don't seem to know him. And the Bible teaches us, uh, the Bible teachers of Jesus' times search the scriptures. I mean, they were scholars. And yet when Jesus came, he didn't fit what they believed that God's rescuer should look like. And so they missed him. They didn't even see the blessing of God and they missed the salvation of God. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to fall on either of these sides. I don't want to allow myself to deceive myself. So how do we avoid deceiving ourselves? How do we develop a winning faith? Well, let me give you two ways to make sure that your faith is a winning faith. First, a winning faith insists on transformation instead of information. A winning faith insists on transformation 
instead of information. And that's the key to everything that Jesus' brother James has written in these passages. He's talking about God's communication to us. He says how we look at the Bible, how we look at the word of God, the communication from God makes all the difference in the world. He is emphasizing that we should be transformed or changed by the word of God. It isn't just interesting information to learn. It is supposed to be life-changing. It's supposed to transform what we do and how we live. When you hear the Bible taught, when scripture says it never returns void, it's never wasted, that is because it's supposed to transform us. It's supposed to change us. And that's why we stress application here at Impact. We aren't trying to help you get 100% on that Facebook Bible quiz. That's not what we're trying to do. We don't want you to be smarter about God. We're trying to help you be right with God and to become more and more like him. Both Abraham and Rahab did something with the information that they received, and that's part of winning faith. Second, a winning faith insists on taking intentional action instead of taking a quick glance. Now, this is found in some of those verses we already read, but let's read them again. Verses 23 through 25. Here's what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, James gives us this great word picture. He is saying that people who hear the Bible taught without making any changes in their lives are trying to follow Jesus by being quick-glance Christians. Have you ever experienced what this passage is talking about? I mean, quick-glance Christians take a quick glance in the mirror and they walk away and they don't remember I remember a while back I was shaving and I cut myself while I was shaving. And you know what guys do when they do that? Maybe girls do. I don't know. I don't know that I want to know. But um, we take a little piece of tissue and we put it on the cut, you know. And so I had done that and continued getting ready for my day. And before I left, I remember taking a quick glance in the mirror. And then I left the house and I went like I always do to get my uh, Diet Coke at Sheets. And when I went in there, I thought some people looked at me a little strange, but you know, I went out to the car and when I got in the car, I looked up in the mirror and there it was, that piece of tissue. You see, it was there because I had only taken a quick glance and quick glance Christians, they come to a weekend service to glance at God's word, but they don't remember what it says on Monday. And other quick glance Christians are just looking for the wrong things. I mean, they want a quick answer. They want quick comfort. They want some time with their friends, or they want a quick glance to get an excuse for continuing to do what they're doing but many who claim to follow Jesus only take a quick glance and therefore they quickly forget what they see and what God wants them to do but the other group that he talks about are people who don't just take a quick glance they look intently they look intently 
And that's what he wants. He, uh, the person who looks intently studies it and they think about it and they see what God is saying, not to the world, but to them what it means to them and they put it into practice in their life and they take intentional action on what they see so as we end we have to decide whether today was just interesting information or whether it's transformational whether it was just a quick glance at these verses or whether it will result in intentional action for us. And as your pastor who loves you, I have this huge fear today. I just have to tell you, I have this huge fear that the ultimate irony is going to happen today. Do you know how ironic it would be for you or for me to leave this room today and say, great message and do nothing, make no change, take no step toward God. So let's end by really considering a question. Each one of us, would you consider this question? What is it that God is trying to get you to move and do? What is it that God is trying to get you to move and do. I believe he brought you here today because he has something that he wants you to do with what you've heard today. And I'm guessing that there's something that, that he wants each of us to do, some action that he wants us to take. Maybe it's a commitment that he wants you to keep. Maybe it's a person that he wants you to help in some tangible way. Maybe it's a relationship that he wants you to fix. Maybe it's an area where he wants you to volunteer to help. Maybe it's an apology that you need to make. Maybe you need to go see a counselor or go to rehab or get into a recovery program. Or maybe you need to take a big step of faith, a big step, you know, to get back to attending services or growth group, not just once a month, not just occasionally, but every week, or maybe it's time for you to be baptized into Christ. Or maybe you should be looking at the back of your notes today and looking at those summer jump instead of summer slump action items and saying, you know what, I'm really going to do at least one of these every week for the rest of the summer. What is it that God's trying to get you to move and do? What is it? And the most important question is, are you going to do it? Whatever it is, are you going to do it? Don't miss what this passage says. When we listen to God's word and do nothing, we have deceived ourselves. We've deceived ourselves. And a faith that talks and feels but never moves is dead. It's useless. So here's the bottom line. Do something. Whatever it is, 
do something. I challenge you today to do something that you know God wants you to do. And my guess is some of you have known for weeks, maybe even months, what it is that God wants you to do. Do something. Don't just take a small step. Take a big step towards obeying him. Take aggressive action to accomplish what God wants you to do. Make a commitment that makes you so uncomfortable that you know that you will never fulfill that commitment unless you really trust God, unless God gets involved. Find a friend to announce a self-imposed deadline uh, so for getting counseling or for volunteering or for fixing that relationship or completing that project. And you don't have to take these steps alone. We're here for you. You've got people all around you who want to help you. You can stop by the Next Steps Canopy following the service and people there will pray for you and help you and encourage you. You can come find me. I'm on the turf field after services. You can come find me or any of our other leaders and we would be glad to help you. You don't have to do it alone, but do something. Do something. Let's pray together.